Welcome to part two of Under the Pyramids, featuring guest host Andrew Lehman and musician Reber Clark. I'm Chad Pfeiffer, joined by my co-host Chris Lackey, and you are listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com. Mary, you knew my husband a long time. Oh, yes, madame. And you remember what he always said about these things? That it was impossible for the dead to return. This proves he was right. For if it would have been possible, I would have had some sign from him in the past ten years. HPPodcraft.com <laughs> But when he faints, he has another crazy vision dream. Yeah, uh, he, he starts dreaming and thinking through all of those burial rites of ancient Egypt in, in which he says people were sort of preparing houses, not tombs. You know, they were preparing for this afterlife. Right, they so completely believe in the afterlife that what they're building is not is a place to live after they die. Right. Yeah. In fact, the you know didn't they bury their servants with them and their cats and their dogs? And yeah. All yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which leads to my favorite sentence in the in the entire story. All these people thought of was death and the dead. <laughs> just, it's, it's short. It's, it's, it's like the shortest sentence in the whole story. Yeah. Too. Exactly. And there's, it just sounds like he's bad mouthing some neighbors or something. <laughs> and all those people think about is death and the dead. I'm sick of it. Always building tombs. But that's, I mean, a lot of, thank goodness for that preservation of their lives because it actually has taught us a lot, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, And if you think about it, people in ancient Egypt didn't live very long. I mean, you know, 20, 30 years tops, you'd probably spend a lot more time being a a corpse than you would uh, being a living person. Yeah, well, I think well, as we all will. That goes goes for everyone at all times. Not me. Not me. Oh well, not you. Yeah. Just recently, there's some new revelations about Tutankhamun, right? Uh, how he died. And oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There were. He, there was a whole documentary that I watched, uh, and he was murdered. Is that what? No, it was? no, 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 no. People he had like, often speculated that he was murdered. No, he, it turns he out he murdered? had kidney disease. That he had. Yeah. He had several major medical complications. Right, he had a club foot. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, they recently okay. did oh, this a... this is becoming familiar Yeah, they now. recently did like a CAT scan or something. Yeah, right. They were and they able to diagnose, yeah. They, they, they finally identified who's definitely who his father was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Information I don't have uh, readily available right now. <laughs> it was Darth Vader. It was Darth Vader, that's yeah. right. Uh, <laughs> but then he was, yeah, I mean, uh, he was deformed as a result of probably the inbreeding that was going on in the royal family. Well, not just the royal families, like all of Egypt. Marrying your sister or brother was a big deal. Mm-hmm. It was encouraged in that society. It's one of the few societies that, that um, incest was good. Right. It was important to them. There's some weird, I, I was reading a whole thing about uh, Egypt and... And that was one of those facts that really stuck with me. That they were inbreeding a lot. Well, yeah. apparently there's lots of screwed up things that they did in ancient Egypt. One of which is that when they mummified people, sometimes they'd swap out the human head for an animal head. <laughs> uh, what's, the, what's the problem with that? Yeah. I actually don't see the problem with that. But it, 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 it disturbs, in this dreaming that Houdini's doing, he uh-huh. thinks it over. Uh, and it, it disturbs him. Now, is there... Have they ever found any mummies actually like that? Or is that just a story? No, that's, I think, in the story. And specifically in the story, too, he says... There's no evidence that's been found of it because it's been hidden. It's been buried oh. because it's so, you know, it's such an abhorrent practice. Yes. So very decadent. What happened to those composite mummies is not told of, at least publicly, and it is certain that no Egyptologist ever found one. The whispers of Arabs are very wild and cannot be relied upon. They even hint that old Kefren, he of the Sphinx, the Second Pyramid, and the yawning Gateway Temple, lives far underground wedded to the ghoul queen Natakris and ruling over the mummies that are neither of man nor of beast. It was of these, Kefren and his consort and his strange armies of the hybrid dead, 
that I dreamed, and that is why I am glad the exact dream shapes have faded from my memory. My most horrible vision was connected with, a, with an idle question I had asked myself the day before when looking at the great carven riddle of the desert and wondering with what unknown depths the temple so close to it might be secretly connected. Now that question, so innocent and whimsical then, assumed in my dream a meaning of frenetic and hysterical madness. What huge and loathsome abnormality was the Sphinx originally carven to represent? I don't know. Well, let me tell you. No! <laughs> Andrew, I, I don't know. Uh, Houdini has the most exposition-laden dreams I've ever heard of. Uh, so when Houdini finally comes to the rope that had buried him, gone. it's just gone. Yes. Yeah. Somebody removed it. He he speculates, and in the process gave him a whole batch of fresh new wounds. Yeah. Well, as though some bird had been pecking at him or something. Yeah. Really yeah. strange. But that kind of steals him up because he thinks, look, if there's physical things around here, I can take them. This I can do. Right, yeah. That he felt confident he could deal with. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And then again, he starts doing what he does best. He makes with the escape. Escape! And it takes all of his skill and then some to get loose. Because, again, these are some tight bounds. But uh, when he does, he's pretty exhausted. He's got to lay there for a while. He finds that wherever he is, it's completely black. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when he finally gets up enough energy to start roaming around, he doesn't want to walk at random. No, no. So he heads towards that putrescent smell. That breeze. He, There's a breeze. Because yeah. he figures... Through. That smell's got to be coming from somewhere, and if there's an opening anywhere in the world, Houdini figures he can get through it. Exactly. But soon he realizes that the smell is so bad, the wind is doubtless taking him towards a greater abyss because it's not the clean-smelling yeah. wind of the desert. Right. But he doesn't want to retrace his steps and get lost, so he, he says he thinks you know it's better to find the source of this wind, use it as a landmark, and, and kind of go from there. Because mm -hmm. then he'll at least he'll be able to find a wall, and then he can trace the wall to mm -hmm. in the other direction and find the way out. Exactly. Unfortunately, as he as he gets closer to that wind, he he trips. There's an unexpected step, and he falls down this huge flight of stone stairs. Mm -hmm. And here he, he leaves the story and he skips it ahead a bit and says, you know, sometimes he thinks back on this whole thing with humor. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, and you know he thinks you know maybe I never fainted maybe this whole thing was one big coma <laughs> he says like one big fainting spell starting with him getting lowered into the pit and ending with him stretched out in the sand well I mean and he, he says in this paragraph too that the constables basically said that there was an entrance where the, the the bars were bent to the side where that that he could have come out of so that he was somehow he made his way out of there even though he doesn't remember exactly See, and, and that's this is where Lovecraft typically sabotages himself as a storyteller in that he gives away the ending here in the middle of the story. He lets <laughs> us know that it all comes out okay, Houdini gets out, right. and everything's going to be fine. So yeah. he kills any chance of suspense right. by telling the end of the story now <laughs> instead of waiting for later. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And he does that a lot. He does and it's because, you know, I presume it's because he wants the last line to be that big shocking mind-blowing revelation. revelation yeah so right. he blows it now so that he can have his mind-blowing revelation be the last line of the story well and also too the the narrators of the story are it's in first person and they're telling a story right so obviously it's, it's always that's always yeah. the case that lovecraft sabotages the, yeah. the suspense because they have to live because they're telling the story otherwise how can they and of course it, you know if it's harry houdini you know perfectly well that harry houdini's alive and kicking in 1924 so yes. yeah although it would be great if sometime he ended a, a paragraph with the italicized sentence by by the way, I'm writing this while I'm dead. <laughs> Even in the story, I think he's conscious of Andrew's criticism, so he, he admits, I'm sorry I digress. Uh, let's yeah. get back to the story. 
and he says, you know, the smell was much worse down these stairs. And maybe it's time to stop going towards this wind and get the heck out of here. Yeah. So he starts trying to climb away from it. And as he's feeling around, he, he feels that he's at the base of these gigantic columns. Well, he feels that there's the hieroglyphics, like when he feels the oh, walls. Yeah. yeah, he can feel that there's carvings in the, in the, in the walls and on the, uh, the pillars. Right, yeah, there's some structures down there. Yes. Mm -hmm. and, and we're still, he starts to become aware of these sounds. He says, uh, That they were very ancient and distinctly ceremonial, I felt almost intuitively. In their rhythmic piping, droning, rattling, and beating, I felt an element of terror beyond all the known terrors of Earth. Then, I began to hear, faintly and far, far off, a morbid, millennial tramping of a marching thing. It was hideous that footfalls so dissimilar should move in such perfect rhythm. The training of unhallowed stalking, rumbling, lumbering, crawling, and all to the abhorrent discords of those mocking instruments. And then, God keep the memory of those Arab legends out of my head, the mummies without souls, the meeting place of the wandering cars, the hordes of the devil-cursed pharaonic dead of forty centuries, the composite mummies led through the uttermost onyx voids by King Kephren and his ghoul queen Natakris. The wandering cause? What does that mean? The Egyptian conception of life and, and the afterlife. Uh -huh. You know, you had a body and you had a soul and you had a ka. Mm -hmm. And the ka was part of your personhood that survived the death of your physical body and had to be taken care of and appeased by your relatives. And it was depicted in pictures as a bird with a human head. Oh, right, yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. And it's just sort of part of your personhood that survives death. And it could possibly return to your mummified and, yeah, physical body. And right. reanimate your... If your body was properly preserved and mummified, then your car could re-enter it and... and you know, drive you like a zombie to stagger around. There's one passage in, in there where, where uh, Lovecraft as Houdini is describing the fear that he felt. And, you know, we know that Houdini sort of objected to the the depiction of him as fainting or, or being afraid because right. it's like his whole professional reputation depended on him never fainting or right. being afraid. He was too manly for any of that. But Lovecraft describes the fear as being unrelated to any you know sense of personal fear that it was it was a sense of pity for the planet yeah right. and that's like such a that's such a deliciously lovecraftian yeah, concept of you know that's lovecraft right there so i feel nothing but pity for this entire planet <laughs> when i'm down in this incredibly deep pit beneath the sphinx right. you know that so big it could hold the eiffel tower 400 times over that's such a lovecraftian really sentence Houdini's thinking that these are those animal-headed mummy, uh, ka-possessed monsters of legend. Uh -huh. As they approach, they bring some light with them, and he hides behind one of these columns he feels, and in the light he sees, holy crap, these columns are enormous. Just the base of these things would dwarf the Eiffel Tower to insignificant. He really is deep underground. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's huge. And they keep getting closer and closer. I would not look at the marching things. That I desperately resolved as I heard the creaking joints and nitrous wheezing above the dead music and the dead tramping. It was merciful that they did not speak. Good God. The crazy torches began to cast shadows on the surface of those stupendous columns. Heaven take it away. Hippotomized should not have human hands and carry torches. Men should not have the heads of crocodiles. So there's a Fantasia-esque hippopotami yeah. with torches... I agree that men should not have crocodile heads. Yeah, I agree. 
all back in agreement. Um, Houdini, Houdini begins to tell himself, this is only a dream, it's only a dream. That doesn't help at all. I know. Uh, and then there's this giant, big, terrible sound, like a death rattle, or I think he calls it a corpse gurgle. He actually calls it both. Yes. <laughs> he, uh, uh, Houdini opens his eyes to see that all of the terrible beasts have sort of filed in one direction and are worshipping at this aperture where the noxious wind has, has come from. And this opening, this giant opening, is flanked by two giant staircases. One of these was the one that he apparently fell down. This, this hole is huge, and the things are throwing tributes of some kind to this space. Objects which he hints are something so horrible he doesn't want to say what they are. I assume it's some kind of bodies or... You know, dead babies, who knows what. It's something so unspeakably horrible that he can't even let himself think about what it actually is. Hummus. What did you say? (laughs) He said hummus. Hummus? (laughs) I love hummus. I don't know if I said that. Yeah, hummus is delicious. If I, you know, that would be an excellent way to get me out of any hole. Some some hummus and some peanut chips in there. King Kefrin and Queen Natakris are there. You know, they're leading this army of hybrid. And it turns out King Kefrin is his guide. Yeah. Abdul. Yeah. Alreus Drogman. That's right. It turns out that unlicensed guide who uh, set him up at the top of the pyramid is none other than King Kefrin himself. Right. The dude that had the pyramids and the Sphinx built. That's right. So he had already... He's a big wig. He's a big wig. The biggest. Likes to go among the... The wiggiest. The wiggiest. Queen Natakris, a little detail there, half of her face has been eaten away by rats. Or some other ghouls. Yeah, he doesn't... Who, <laughs> who can tell? Who knows? You have to get pretty close to determine that it's rats. Yeah. But he thinks, hey, if all these things are distracted with their worshipping and their their obedience, then perhaps I can climb out of here up one of those staircases while they're distracted. He carefully makes it to the base of the staircase, crawling along, and he begins to ascend. He has no intention of looking back. No. Uh, but he does hear another one of those big death rattle corpse gurgles, and he feels compelled to, to He's look He's got to look. Yeah. He can't not look. The monstrosities were hailing something which had poked itself out of the nauseous aperture. Seize the hellish fare proffered it. There was something quite ponderous. Even as seen from my height, something yellowish and hairy, and endowed with a sort of nervous motion. It was as large, perhaps, as a good-sized hippopotamus very curiously shaped. It seemed to have no neck, but five separate shaggy heads springing in a row from a roughly cylindrical trunk. The first, very small, the second, good-sized, the third and fourth, equal and largest of all, and the fifth, rather small, though not so small as the first. Out of these heads started curious, rigid tentacles which seized ravenously on the Excessively great quantities of unmentionable food placed before the aperture. Once in a while, the thing would leap up. Occasionally, it would retreat into its den in a very odd manner. Its locomotion was so inexplicable that I stared in fascination, wishing it would emerge further from the cavernous lair beneath me. That's a strange-sounding thing that yeah. he's described. Rigid yeah. tentacles. I don't know. It took yeah, that, me, I sat and scratched my head over that for a while. Maybe they're slightly curved in yeah. rigid tentacles. Sharpened, perhaps, on one end? Maybe. And and then, of course, this thing does emerge, the whole of it. And at that sight, Houdini turns and he just gets the heck out of there. Typical Lovecraftian protagonist. He doesn't exactly recall how or mm-hmm. how he escaped or, or what had happened, but... He goes up some staircases and ladders through some M.C. Escher underground painting, and he emerges on the sands in the dawn in front of the Great Sphinx. Where does he then 
lapse again into unconsciousness and they find him later. He doesn't... He doesn't really say. Yeah. No, yeah he doesn't just, say. I, 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 in fact, I was going to say he was found out there, but I don't know. I think he just wakes up and he's okay. in front of the Great Sphinx. The Great Sphinx. God. That idle question I asked myself on that sunless morning before. What huge, loathsome abnormality was the Sphinx originally carving to represent? Accursed is the sight, be it in dream or not, that revealed to me the supreme horror, the unknown god of the dead, which licks its colossal chops in the unsuspected abyss. That hideous morsels by soulless absurdities that should not exist. The five-headed monster that emerged. That five-headed monster as large as a hippopotamus. The five-headed monster. And that of which it is the merest forepaw. But I survived. And I know it was only a dream. So now you get it. Yeah, it's the paw. It's of, the paw of the, of, of of the actual living, living sphinx. sphinx. Yeah, That's that, the end of the story. That's the end. Yeah, That's a neat trick, though. There's a five-headed monster. Oh, wait, that's just its hand. Yeah. <laughs> so those rigid tentacles are just claws, claws yeah. coming yeah. out of the end of what is basically a giant lion's paw. I, I know I'm a minority in this one, but I, I, don't, I don't care much for the story. No? I love Houdini, and I think that what kind of bothers me about it is that Houdini doesn't really do anything like he escapes from the ropes uh-huh. and then he just beats beat and sees some creepy stuff like I wanted Houdini to be doing some cool stuff like maybe punching out yeah. some things or figuring out some way to trick some monsters or to you know but Chris that's a very good point Lovecraft most I mean this is how most Lovecraft stories are you know where yeah. they I feel like it should be more pulpy and not so Lovecrafty and the that fact was, that did you see that movie Bubba Hotep I uh, did oh, yeah, the Don yeah. Coscarelli movie that's, I have the same complaint about that. You, you set it up where you have Elvis and John F. Kennedy fighting a mummy, and neither of them did Elvis-like or John F. Kennedy-like things. Yeah. You know? Because Elvis, mm. he knew some kung fu, he was good with guns. Yeah. John F. Kennedy was an excellent diplomat. They had all these skills <laughs> they couldn't take him to bear against the mummy. Uh-huh. And they didn't really do it. They yeah. just reacted as two old people would to anything. Right. Well, to a mummy attack. But, right. I mean, you know, I, I was disappointed in that, in that regard. Yeah, now that you mentioned, I mean, you get the world's greatest magician in the world's most awesome Lovecraftian setting uh-huh. and all he does is faint a couple of times and run away. <laughs> and run away. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you're right. It could have been more kick-ass. It definitely could have. That said. That said, it is the world's most awesome magician in the world's most awesome Lovecraftian setting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, there are some really cool parts. Like the whole rope thing is its just genius writing. It's yeah. so cool. This is definitely one of many examples where to Lovecraft, it's all about the style and the word choice and the writing. Because yeah. he doesn't give a damn about plot, obviously. There's no character development. There's no arc. You yeah. know, he even tells you the end of the story in the middle but then he'll throw out these fantastically long descriptive passages of mm-hmm. the escape and the stairs and the wounds and the descent yeah. and all this stuff where what Lovecraft was interested in was the pure writing for its own sake. Yeah. yeah. If you like that you like it. If you don't then you think eh, it should have been more kick-ass. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I do like that and yeah. that's one of the things I really do love about Lovecraft but when I feel like when it's he could have, you could have both, both, and we don't have both. Yes, we don't have both in this particular story. Many times, Lovecraft he nails it, yeah. but in this particular story, yeah, it left me a little, you know. Yeah, eh. I also like uh, Houdini's. You know, I was sad that his wife wasn't involved in the rest of the story. Yeah, I mean, she's a very fascinating 
character. Yeah. Oh, in real life. In yeah, real yeah. life, and 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 uh, his brother's not mentioned in here, but I mean, uh, Houdini's got this little core group of people that he an entourage. Oh yeah, yeah. he yeah. does have an entourage. Yeah, and, he has and, like secret agents who work for him. And speaking of which, yeah. Cinemetti was one of those. Was one of those secret agents. agents. Yes. Uh huh. Who go and you know bust up, you know, not bust up, but go spy on seances and, yeah. and mm-hmm. report the tricks that these bogus spiritualists are using. Right, because Houdini was way too famous to be able to go and do right. these things he, himself. Exactly. So he had to get other people to go in and check it out, and then they would report back, and it's like, you know, what'd you see? And then he goes, well, she did this and this, and he goes, oh, okay, yeah. I think I know what's up with that, and yeah. I can go in and, and, you know, bust her, or have somebody else bust her. Right. Oh, it's such a, such a cool guy. Houdini yeah. was awesome. Lovecraft and Houdini did meet. Yes, at least on one occasion, probably more, but we're not really sure. It's reported that they met, but like I said at the beginning, a lot of the things that Houdini claims to have done, he never, right. never actually did. Why he would exaggerate that he met H.P. Lovecraft at dinner in Providence, there's no real reason to be boasting about that. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, From what I have read. Uh, from they, what we've read, yes. they, they had dinner they had together dinner. in Providence at least once while Houdini was performing in Providence. I read some crazy uh, article online that had all kinds of conspiracy theories about this dinner that Lovecraft and Houdini had in September of 24. Uh, really? Yeah, because Bess got very ill after the Oh, right. right. She got terribly somebody sick. Somebody thought, well, you know, somebody was trying to kill them because of their well, so there's cult. A, there's a big thing that the, the a group of psychics were trying to kill Houdini and that he was actually assassinated. Like, he was yeah. poisoned really? when he died. Oh, yeah, that's this big thing. Years after his death, his wife was still conducting seances every Halloween. Yeah, for ten years. Of, as a means of continuing his work of attempting to bust fake right. psychics to prove that, look, if if it were possible to come back from the dead, my husband would have done it. And right. we've tried every year for ten years, and there has been no evidence. He had a code word. Yeah, that he gave right. her before he died. Right, and I don't, I don't remember. Now That's like, how she would know that it was really him. Yeah, and right. she never heard the code. Nope. Never so happened. in thirty-six, she she called off any future seances. Yeah. Now at my thirtieth birthday, we had a seance. We did at the Magic Castle in the uh-huh. Houdini room. He still didn't manifest. So I, in a way, I carried on his work as well. Uh, yeah, me personally, very good. But we did. I mean, the table shook, and we yeah. there was some unearthly presence in the room. That's true. Really? There pretty, were things like that. Who conducted yeah. the seance? Uh, I don't know. Some guy with a goatee. Yeah, he looked, he looked pretty <laughs> sinister. Oh, well, then it must have been real. He looked yeah. pretty sinister. <laughs> it was pretty sinister. He had a goatee. Yeah. On a side <clears> note, <throat> we, we this is under the pyramids, but it was originally published uh, Imprisoned with the Pharaohs. Oh, right, right. Well, that's the title I read it under. I didn't know it was Yeah. Under. Well, check this out. The only way that we know that it was originally under the, under the pyramids is because Lovecraft lost the original manuscript. And in Union Station and in Providence. And Union Station in Providence. And he put an ad out in the paper that says, looking for this manuscript called Under the Pyramids. And, oh. and you know, he put in, you know, hopefully somebody would turn it into him and never happened. So him and Sonia, he was on his way to New York to get married. Yeah. So him and Sonia rewrote it, like typed it up. She helped him retype yeah, it Yeah, I think the, he did the first part, got married, then did the second yeah, part. Yeah, uh-huh. So it was a working wedding, I guess. Like, that should have been the tip-off for Sonia right there. Oh, yeah. boy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't have much more. I know that we could talk about Houdini at length, but we're yeah. approaching end here. Chris, what are we doing next week? Next week we are doing The Shunned House. And I'll just say one more time, thank you so much to Reaver Clark for providing some great music. Reaver, man. Way to rock it. I'm Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Andrew Lehman. And this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. HPPodcraft.com. 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 Ah!